For Friday, November 5th, it's the early word from the WNYC Newsroom. I'm Brian Zumhagen in for Isaac Davy Aronson with a look at this morning's top news, the day ahead, and reporting highlights from the WNYC News Team. Coming up, longtime businesses fighting the makeover of the Coney Island Boardwalk will be rallying this weekend. Also, pianist Garrick Olson talks about his series for the bicentenary of Chopin's birthday. That's all coming up after this morning's top headlines just ahead. The Early Word is a production of WNYC Radio. You can support this podcast by making a donation at WNYC.org, where you can also get the latest updates on this morning's headlines on the news page. New York's mostly Democratic congressional delegation is about to lose a whole lot of clout now that Republicans will be taking over the House of Representatives. The GOP takeover means senior members of Congress from New York will have to give up the chairmanships of at least three full committees. Upstate Congresswoman Louise Slaughter will step down as chair of the powerful Rules Committee. Lower East Side and Brooklyn Congresswoman Nidia Velasquez will vacate the Small Business Committee, and Brooklyn Congressman Ed Towns will hand over the gavel at the Oversight and Investigations Committee. Those chairmanships are expected to go to the highest-ranking Republican on each committee. Rutgers political science professor Ross Baker predicts the transition may be tough for some. You know, in the House of Representatives, when you move from being the chairman of a committee to being a ranking member, that's a vast demotion. Uh, because the House is ruled so relentlessly by the majority party. The change to Republican rule means Long Island Congressman Peter King is likely to regain the chairmanship of the Homeland Security Committee. There's more bad economic news out of Albany. The Patterson administration says a $315 million gap has opened up in New York State's budget midway through the fiscal year. The reasons? Lower than expected tax revenues and higher spending on Medicaid and other social services due to high unemployment. The governor's budget director, Robert Megna, says one way to close the gap is to use a contingency plan already approved by the legislature earlier this year for across-the-board cuts. We're certainly open to suggestions from, from the legislature, for example, if they had other ideas about how to close it. I think what the governor has made clear is he'd like to do it on the spending side. The legislature would have to vote to reauthorize the contingency plan before it could take effect. Lawmakers are due back at the Capitol on November 15th, but uncertainty over three undecided races and which party will control the Senate in the future may complicate negotiations on the budget gap. A key figure in the scandal involving the New York state pension system has agreed to enter a guilty plea. Hank Morris was the top political advisor to former state controller Alan Hevesy, who himself entered a guilty plea last month. The scandal involved investment managers giving officials campaign contributions, lavish vacations, and consulting fees in exchange for the chance to manage part of the state's $125 billion pension fund. Still unresolved is the fate of former U.S. auto czar and major Democratic Party donor Stephen Ratner, whose name has surfaced in connection with the scandal. Ratner's denied any wrongdoing. The probe has already netted several convictions and generated more than $139 million in restitution to the state pension fund. Some New York City residents are being advised to run their taps for 30 seconds before drinking the water, cooking with it, or using it to make baby formula. The warning comes after tests showed elevated levels of lead in tap water in some older buildings. City Commissioner of Environmental Protection Cass Holloway says the lead levels come from lead solder that was used in the plumbing of buildings constructed before 1961. There may be a chance that when you're not using your water, like overnight or um, when you're at work or school and the water that's in the household line is sitting there waiting for you to come home and turn on the water, there's a chance that lead could actually leach into the tap water 
City officials say even with the slightly elevated lead levels found in some water supplies, there's no clear health risk. But anyone who's concerned can call 311 for a free lead testing kit from the city. Chilean miner Edison Peña is putting on his running shoes just weeks after his dramatic rescue from a collapsed mine in northern Chile. He'll be participating in this Sunday's New York City Marathon after keeping in shape by running up to six miles each day in the mine's tunnels. Through an interpreter at a press conference in Central Park, Peña said running kept his hopes up. What I thought about as I ran in the mine was that I was going to beat destiny. I was going to turn the tables on destiny. Pena suffered a knee injury while in the mine, but hopes that he'll be able to finish the race. New York Roadrunners President Mary Wittenberg says his presence is enough. We're happy for Edison just to be here. And so we're encouraging a walking and running approach, but he's obviously has a mind of his own. Pena will be one of an estimated 43,000 racers in this Sunday's marathon. The October jobs report comes out today. This is the big one, the one analysts, investors, economists, politicians, central bankers, and everyone else is watching and waiting to see. And it comes three days after the midterm, so whatever the results, it's too late to sway voters either way. After President Obama delivers a statement on the monthly jobs numbers this morning, he'll take off on his longest overseas trip since he took office. The 10-day tour will take him to India, Indonesia, Japan, and South Korea. NASA will once again try to launch Shuttle Discovery on its final mission today. Liftoff is scheduled for just after 3 o'clock this afternoon, weather permitting. Longtime boardwalk businesses in Coney Island are putting up one last fight tomorrow in an attempt to stay open. WNYC's Kathleen Horan has more. A rally is scheduled for noon organized for the most part by patrons of the nine businesses and concessions that didn't receive new leases and were told they needed to be out by the middle of this month. Most of the public outcry and online petitioning has centered around saving Ruby's Bar, the 76-year-old spot that's part time capsule, part boardwalk rec room. One of Ruby's owners, Michael Sorrell, says whatever happens, he'll be open on Saturday. If, in fact, we're gone, you know, we want to just offer them sort of you know, one last chance to celebrate rubies. A spokesman for Central Amusement International, the boardwalk leaseholder, says the venue's closing will be replaced by other seaside attractions that reflect the unique character and spirit of the golden age of America's playground. For WNYC, I'm Kathleen Horan. It's been a huge year for Chopin as the bicentenary of the composer's birthday has been celebrated by artists all over the globe. That includes pianist Garrick Olson, whose Chopin series is drawing to a close as the year ends. Olson spoke to WNYC's Sarah Fishko for a Chopin edition of The Fishko Files. Garrick Olson had his first big Chopin experience at age nine, hearing Arthur Rubinstein, one of the great star pianists of an earlier era, in a packed to the rafters all Chopin concert in the 50s. I remember particularly the G minor ballad. And I thought it was the most exciting, hair-raising thing. Talk about an experience that changes your life. Um, but it really is something, I, I, a memory I turn to incredibly frequently. By now, decades later, Olsen is a bit of a Chopin master himself. And he's still fascinated with what Chopin did for music and how he did it. 
Piano music after Chopin was a different place. Actually, the whole world of music became gradually a different place. Chopin really did change the pianistic landscape. His music seems to fall from heaven. It seems to be created on the spot. It has this feeling of absolute spontaneity which comes from being an improviser. Of course, they were all improvisers in those days. But it isn't as if these improvisations just leapt out of Chopin's mind, messily onto the page. There are certain interesting paradoxes at work. And that's one of the great things that makes Chopin who he is, is that he's at the cusp of violent emotion, always perfectly controlled. You know, he was... He was a very well-dressed guy. He cared very much that his coats and everything and his gloves were absolutely perfectly turned out. And I think he really would work on a piece like this for a very, very long time to make it sound as if it were invented on the spot. Georges Sand said that he would improvise a piece that would just be enchanting and then spend the next six to eight weeks suffering the torches of the damned to get it down on paper so that it sounded just like it did when he made it up. But Olson likes to open the hood of a Chopin piece and look inside at the mechanics of the melodies and bass lines, all with the understanding that in Chopin's lifetime, the piano was just starting to develop as a modern instrument. And he began to unlock its potential. For example, let me just take several steps backwards. In the old days, when you had a melody, you often put a harmony underneath it. You almost always did. Which gives a nice. Next, Olson mixes generations. He puts a Mozart style bass line under a Chopin melody. If we take the great D flat Nocturne Opus 27, number 2, and we put an Alberti bass under it, it might sound something like this. It'll sound very ordinary. By the time you get to Chopin, he's expanding things terrifically. And he puts it all under one pedal. It's written right in the the score. And in doing so... Um, He provides a magical framework because all of the resonances of all the notes underneath begin to gather into this harmonic glow. So, So you begin to see and hear how the timbre is so important. It grow, The music is, grows out of the piano and into the piano. It's written for the piano only. The timbre itself becomes an element of the music. If you remember my silly example, that would be okay, but it wouldn't make people's eyes roll back in their heads the way they do when you hear a good performance of this piece. There, there wouldn't be this absolute ecstasy of sound and melody and timbre and all kinds of things at work. No piano music before Chopin had ever been quite so glamorous. I mean, just think of that nocturne I was just citing. I mean, where you just, oh! <laughs> or, or even the most famous of all the nocturnes, which is so beautiful, one forgets how beautiful it is. 
you know, a piece that's become virtually hackneyed and over-orchestrated, but it, it's of such a, a, a compelling beauty and glamour. I, I use the word glamour in the in very best sense. So the question for this pianist, who has spent his life playing and understanding Chopin, is how hard is it to play? Is it all sweat and agony? With Chopin, it's not so much the sweat and the agony, although there's plenty of it. But his difficulty is of a kind of organic athleticism. You know, the kind you see perhaps in ice skating or in great athletic endeavors where the accomplishment is incredibly hard, but once you accomplish it, it's not usually so much of a strain. You're doing a triple lutz, you do a triple lutz, and the ice skater leaps up and says, ah! <laughs> you know, and, and you therefore ignore the hundreds of hours that it took them to get to that place. He was such a one-man hit factory. Oh gosh, wasn't he? And that combined with his um, incredible melodic gifts, does he is a one-man hit parade. He's a one-man top-of-the-charts guy. And that's another astounding thing about Chopin is his popularity, which has been present since the day he was alive. You'll play something like this. Oh, I love Chopin. People have this heartfelt, instant response. So he's, you know, he appeals right across the board, and yet the artists in his time who admired him were the greatest artists of the day, Liszt, Mendelssohn, Schumann. These were the finest and the best, and they were all driven nuts by this guy. And with that, Garrick Olson glides into Chopin's revolutionary etude, soaring over the ice for a clean landing and a perfect skate. Great. For WNYC, I'm Sarah Fishko. Garrick Olson's All Chopin series continues next Wednesday at Alice Tully Hall with the final installment next month. For more information, visit our website, wnyc.org. And now it's time for our gig alert for tonight. When passions and plans turn into memories, it's an avalanche of misery. New York City producer and performer Baby Dayliner croons over handcrafted songs he's manipulated with synthesizers and sampling. Born Ethan Marunas, Baby Dayliner performs tonight at Mercury Lounge on the Lower East Side. You can download this track at least for free on our culture page. Just click on culture at WNYC.org. You can learn more about all the stories you heard here, download more podcasts, and go in-depth with our reporters on the news blog. That's all at our website, WNYC.org. You can hear us there 24 hours a day as well as on the air at 93.9 FM and AM820. From the WNYC Newsroom, I'm Brian Zumhagen. Have a great day.